Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. I'm here today with our intern this spring, Emily King, and assistant editor, Griffin Olenek. We're recording this episode just as the coronavirus is beginning to really feel like a crisis situation in the United States with a shortage of test kits dwarfing the real numbers, uncertain federal, state, and local responses, and now the implementation of travel restrictions and, in fact, the creation of a containment zone in a suburb of New York City called New Rochelle, where there's been a, a very large number of cases. Other countries like Iran, Italy, South Korea have been dealing with large outbreaks, and now the United States is as well. But Hong Kong has managed to limit the spread of the disease, despite its geographical proximity to mainland China, where the outbreak started. The island has seen just over 100 cases since the outbreak began. And Emily, I'm wondering if you could pick up there and sort of explain why. Yeah, so I was a child in Hong Kong during the 2002 SARS epidemic. And I think part of why Hong Kong has responded so quickly to this crisis is that the cultural memory of this sickness is very fresh. To give you a sense of what Hong Kong looks and feels like, growing up, I always felt that Hong Kong was an ordered and efficient city, despite it being one of the most densely populated places in the world. There are lots of malls, marble floors, air conditioning, you're surrounded by skyscrapers, and daily life involves getting into elevators and onto escalators. So part of the reason why the protests shocked so many native Hong Kongers is that many of them would have never expected their orderly city to be consumed by violence, by the destruction of a university, and the tear gassing of civilians. Hong Kong has been hard hit in the past year with the protests and now the virus. But it's a resilient place. And Griffin, I want to ask you too, because uh, our interview uh, subject today is an author named Jeffrey Wasserstrom. And maybe you could talk a little bit about why we're talking with him today. Sure. So Jeffrey Wasserstrom is an expert on China. He's currently a professor at University of California, Irvine. And he's just had, uh, this past month, a new book come out uh, entitled Vigil, Hong Kong on the Brink. And it's a history of the protest movement that began last summer, but really a deeper dive into Hong Kong's history, its cultural identity, and why it matters today. And I, just as a resident of New York City, uh, similar to Emily's description of Hong Kong, am fascinated by, well, what would happen if such a crisis were to occur here? How would people respond? And so I think now, especially with coronavirus, creating the atmosphere of crisis and with our democratic institutions under assault from the Trump administration, Hong Kong becomes a really important case for us to observe what happens when rights begin to erode, how can order be maintained in face of an epidemic. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Emily, uh, thanks, and Griffin, thanks. And since you two both interviewed him, why don't we actually listen to that interview now? Sounds good. Great. Jeffrey, thanks so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. Could you give us a timeline of the protests thus far and tell us a bit about what sparked them, what the protesters want, and whether you think they're likely to prevail? So there are different points you can date the beginning of this latest wave of protests, but it's usually dated from June 9th when there was a march of an estimated a million people. And then one week later, two million people protested. And that's where just the enormity of that in a city of seven and a half million is uh, incredible. And then the protests have continued sporadically ever since. The impetus for this wave of protests was an extradition bill 
which if it had gone through, would have meant that people that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to have tried on the mainland mm -hmm. could be sent from Hong Kong to the mainland where there are very few protections of any sort for defendants. And if you're put on trial, the chances are you're, you're going to be put away. What that did was made a lot of Hong Kong people feel vulnerable to the reach of an increasingly authoritarian Chinese Communist Party state and feel that if that went through, Hong Kong's rule of law and separateness from the mainland would really be undermined. Mm -hmm. But one reason they've lasted so long and had such power is that the movement quickly became also a movement for the right to protest itself, which people felt was endangered by the way the police were dealing with protesters. Mm -hmm. It's important to remember that Hong Kong, while it's never been a fully democratic-run city, there has been a strong tradition of rule of law there. It's a place where you felt you had the right to protest. So the movement's gone on much longer than anybody expected, in part because it became a movement against police violence, and that's really kept people on the streets for a very long time. And they're still there. They're still there. There aren't as many significant gatherings of size, not actually because of people giving up on the movement, but because of the coronavirus, which began on the mainland and spread into Hong Kong. And it's led people to be less willing to get together in large crowds uh, in any place. And so that's, that's put the public side of the movement on pause. Hmm. And Jeffrey, you've made frequent trips to Hong Kong. Could you speak a bit about your last trip there and also the June 4th vigil? and the, the spirit that you saw there. I was there from June 3rd to June 7th. And I went there specifically to observe and participate in the vigil that's held every year on June 4th to commemorate the massacre of 1989 that put an end to the Tiananmen protests. And that vigil is important in many different ways. One is simply that across the mainland, you cannot commemorate the martyrs mm -hmm. of that event in any manner, in public, certainly, and even in private, it's kind of a dangerous thing to do. Hong Kong is a special administrative region of the PRC, so it's governed by somewhat different laws mm -hmm. and practices, as is Macau. Mm -hmm. Hong Kong was a former British colony that became part of the PRC in the late 1990s. Mm -hmm. Macau was a former Portuguese colony that became part of it. And in each case, there's something called a one country, two systems arrangement. Right whereby they're part of the country of the PRC, but their own system is supposed to, in Hong Kong's case, last 50 years from the time that it became part of China. And a high degree of autonomy is supposed to be the rule for there. So the fact that you can do something in public in Hong Kong that you can't do on the mainland is a key marker that the differences still exist. I sometimes like to say that the movement actually began on June 6th, the evening I before I left, okay. because while there wasn't a giant march then, there was an important anti-extradition bill march. It was a march by 3,000 members of the legal community, lawyers, mm -hmm. all dressed in black, and it was a silent march. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, in some sense, a vigil of a sort as well. It was a vigil in the sense of watching over something dying, a vigil for the rule of law. And we generally don't think of lawyers as a type to collectively engage 
in that sort of action. So I think it was very telling. No, and as you say, yeah. it has an almost uh, quasi-liturgical ring to it. Exactly. The silence. Exactly. And vigil itself, uh, as we know, is a religious term. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit about the state of religion today in Hong Kong. And I know that that's played some role in the protests. You mentioned that Joshua Wong, one of the young activists, cites Dr. Martin Luther King and his Christian faith as one of his inspirations. Could you say more about religious freedom in Hong Kong, how that's playing out, how it's different from China? Yeah, it's very different. And I think it is one of the things that people are worrying about disappearing. And there have been moves against churches as well, more, much more dramatic moves against followers of Islam. Mm-hmm. In Hong Kong itself, uh, so Joshua Wong, who was the face of the international face of the umbrella movement and probably the most famous Hong Kong activist of uh, recent times. So he does talk about the role of Christian faith in his actions. There are senior figures in religious groups in Hong Kong who've been important. So Cardinal Zen Mm -hmm. has been somebody who's been supporting the democracy movement for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And a Reverend Chu, a Baptist Mm -hmm. minister, has been another one who's been very important. So they're the two locally most famous figures of that. And Emily, I know you've been talking to people on the ground in Hong Kong. How have the protests been affecting the religious landscape in the city? I phoned my uncle who lives in Hong Kong at the moment and I asked him what his perspective was because he's very well plugged in with Protestant churches in the area. And there's such a temptation and I would say even a craving for the story to fit maybe something like the movie Selma where there's there's something so beautiful that people are coming together that the churches are places where people are figuring out how to reconcile and figuring out how to engage in nonviolent protest. Mm -hmm. But the picture that my uncle painted was far more complex. Mm -hmm. I think he he mentioned that churches are also really struggling, splitting apart, pro-protester side, pro-police side. Mm -hmm. Even that some people are talking about founding churches that are based on this distinction. Yeah. And Carrie Lam herself is is publicly Catholic. Right. We didn't right. mention that, yeah. um, that she famously said something about how she believes there's a spot reserved for her in heaven. And this prompted some skepticism. I mean, the other thing that's a curious semi-religious thing that's, that's not specifically religious is in November, the most dramatic thing that happened were sieges on two universities. Mm -hmm. And there were protesters there who were making Molotov cocktails. There was a very militant Mm -hmm. moment by then, but the police stormed onto campuses and turned them into sort of war zones. And that really violated a sense of a lot of Hong Kongers of how things are supposed to work because universities, while it's not formally Mm -hmm. described this way, in Chinese tradition, universities often function as kind of sanctuary spaces. Those are spaces where because of the special role accorded to education and students, that just isn't supposed to happen. So the story you're describing is one in which Hong Kongers are kind of gradually coming to sense that their autonomy is under assault. And I wonder if you could explain a bit about how this consciousness arose. So after the handover, after Hong Kong became part of the People's Republic of China with this 50-year grace period kind of rule, The first real test of its degree of autonomy was in 2003 when something called Article 23, a new anti-sedition law, was introduced. And when that happened, there were massive protests, Mm -hmm. peaceful protests, and the government backed 
down and withdrew the bill. So that seemed to people to feel like, okay, this one country, two systems thing is kind of working. If there's something we feel passionate about and we express ourselves, even though we don't democratically elect the chief executive, the chief executive at least listens to the people. And so that was one of the first tests of the degree of autonomy. And then there was another test in 2012 when there was, again, a move to, in this case, introduce a patriotic education so that civics in Hong Kong, you learn about things like protest movements like the Tiananmen protests mm-hmm. that aren't taught in mainland schools. And so a group of Hong Kong students, including Joshua Wong and his, his classmate, Agnes Chow, said if this kind of education comes in, it erodes Hong Kong's autonomy and they held protests. And again, the government pulled back. Mm-hmm. Then in 2014, in a movement that became known as the Umbrella Movement, when those ubiquitous umbrellas that people carry around Hong Kong because of the tropical climate were used by protesters to block tear gas and pepper spray mm-hmm. that police were using. And the umbrella movement was an effort to try to have the chief executive elected through genuine universal suffrage kinds of elections, mm-hmm. rather than as the chief executive is elected, but only about 2,000 people in a city over over 7 million yeah. get to vote in the election, and the candidates have to be vetted by Beijing. Mm-hmm. So the movement didn't succeed, mm-hmm. even though it was a bigger series of protests, an extended series of protests. It didn't get its main goal. But even before that, there were other things in which it looked as though this moment of really being able to push back with nonviolent protests, mm. being able to achieve things, the government seemed to stop listening. Hmm. And so during the lead up to last year's event, there was frustration. There was frustration at how the umbrella movement had ended. There was frustration at what seemed to be more of the turning the temperature up in the pot of water in which the frog is slowly being boiled. And yeah. if the temperature's turned up really slowly, then maybe the frog just boils. But if it's a ratcheting up of it, then the frog wakes up mm-hmm. and jumps out of the pot, or in this case, takes to the streets. You talked about something that Beijing is not getting, that these protests are not strictly about economic motivations, but they're cultural, they're about identity. And I'm wondering if you could speak more about that. And Emily, maybe this is something that you could also speak to. Yeah, I definitely resonate a lot with what Jeffrey has been saying about especially changes being made to the education system. So I left Hong Kong when I was still a child, but one of the enduring effects of my time there is that I don't know how to speak Cantonese. Hmm. By the time I was in primary school education, Mandarin Chinese was the language of instruction. And furthermore, at least in my school, the type of text that we learned was simplified, which is the kind of text that is read in mainland China. Mm-hmm. I was born in June 1997. That was one month before the official handover. And it's no surprise that Joshua Wong, Agnes Chow, they're basically my age. In much the same way that climate change protest tends to be led by the young. Take, for example, Greta Thunberg. Mm -hmm. It seems that the protesters who are most concerned and most ready to head to the streets are those who, like me, will be in the prime of our lives when the official 2047 date comes around. And the thought of a state like mainland China controlling our lives is one that is enough to propel us to the streets. Mm -hmm. That's great. And actually, it's um, Greta Thunberg just blurbed Joshua Wong's new book, 
and the two of them praise each other on on social media. And so there is a sense of a kindred spirit there too. And it was very interesting the way 2019 was a kind of year of the protester for, yeah. for in many different places, largely about political change, but also about climate change. But there are some elderly now Hong Kongers who are saying, like, it, why didn't we show the same kind of courage before 1997 when our fate was being determined by people other than ourselves? And there's a kind of, you know, admiration, which the authorities keep underestimating. The authorities have kept thinking, if the youth get out of hand, then the kind of serious older people would distance themselves from mm. those protests. And that happens in other, that does happen periodically, but here it hasn't because there is a sense, mm. in part because there's a sense that the youth have a, a point, but also that they're being egged on by the lack of response mm. by the authorities and, and the way that the police are acting. But there's also something, you know, linking the climate change protests and the Parkland, the, the anti-gun protests in the U.S. and the Hong Kong protests, which is a, a sense of this being like an outmatched struggle. It's, uh, right. you know, against impossible odds. David versus Goliath. So it's David thing. versus yeah. Goliath. But what's funny because, okay, and yeah, Joshua Wong does bring biblical imagery sometimes mm -hmm. into his conversations, but he's got a new book coming out of his some of his prison writings and others. And yeah. there at one point, rather than talking- <laughs> so It's in, funny that a 23-year-old can have a book of prison oh, writings Oh, yeah, yeah, out. yeah. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> but in, but it, at one point in the book, he finds his analogies not in the Bible, but in the Star Wars uh, trilogy. He talks about <laughs> the period between the Umbrella Movement and the 2019 protests as being like the second episode in the original Star Wars where, yeah, yeah. where it seems as though the resistance is dead, yeah. but they're actually slowly rebuilding and that it seems that, and so, you know, these kinds of pop culture things permeate the movement as well. But as a social historian or a historian of social movements, this is actually what you study. And, and could you say a bit about the surprising nature of social movements, about how they often defy expectations? Hong Kong keeps defying expectations. But, but the other thing is that I think uh, generations, hmm. when it comes to predicting whether a generation will be politically active or not, I think we we consistently get it wrong. Yeah. This is uh, a mainland example. I went to Shanghai in 1986, the middle of the summer of 86, to start work on a dissertation about student protests of the pre-1949 mm. era. And when I told some of the you know faculty there that that's what I was studying, what some of them said is, oh, it's too bad you're here at this point in time because you won't see anything like that. Because mm -hmm. this generation of students, they're all into perming their hair and listening to <laughs> funny music. And you know they're not interested in politics. And then three months later, there was the biggest protest by students mm -hmm. in years. Mm -hmm. That protest was fairly short-lived. But then just three years later, there was the giant student-led Tiananmen protest. Mm -hmm. And then, you know... Hong Kong youth seemed to be written off at various points. And I mean, nobody was saying before those 2012 protests, oh, you keep an eye on these people born around the handover, they're going to be the politically active ones. There was a lot, you know, that wasn't what they were saying. Yeah. And then they surprised. So the Hong Kong story isn't just about Hong Kong. It isn't just about China, but it's 
part of our consciousness now. Could you speak a bit more about the global dimension of the protests and specifically how has the United States responded, both the Congress and President Donald Trump? So I'm really interested just now in the the global side of it. In Tiananmen, protesters were very aware of international trends and they borrowed from international repertoire of protest actions. And they also borrowed from, from local national traditions. And the Hong Kong protesters, too, in the Umbrella Movement, they, there was a call for Occupy Central, mm-hmm. which had echoes of, of Occupy Wall Street. Yeah. That's the metro stop, right? Central metro. The, the central yeah. and the admiralty, that area. Mm-hmm. And it's the financial district. Mm-hmm. And there were also echoes. They were very aware that there had been protests in Taiwan earlier in 2014 called the Sunflower Movement, mm-hmm. where there'd been an occupation of a legislature. So Hong Kong students were inspired by these things in in Hong Kong people. But in 2019, what I've been interested in, while also inspired by and drawing on this international protest repertoire, the Hong Kong activists have been adding to the protest repertoire globally in very significant ways. Mm. Uh, They're inspiring people Mm -hmm. in other places, but also they have this this call for be water, this idea of not being wedded to particular tactics, not going to the same place and just staying there, but being flexible and using social media to collectively decide where to go next and how to avoid, how to just flow. And this is being adopted by other places. They're not the only place that's called for a leaderless movement. The Yellow Vests in France are also a leaderless movement, but they've helped work that kind of style of flexibility and leaderlessness into the global repertoire. And they've captured the imagination, or they did in the fall, particularly of, of, of Americans in a way that was quite special. The American behavior toward Hong Kong is to treat it as a distinctive zone for trade and finance because it's governed by different rules than the right. mainland. But this is now calling into question how separate it is. So what the Congress is sort of saying is you better protect the separateness of Hong Kong or we'll have to revisit Mm. all kinds of things about how how this trade is done, which is important to – but it's also important at a symbolic level for people in Hong Kong to think that the world really cares about their fate. And Trump has done what I think is very problematic in this sense, though – He's praised Xi Jinping's ability to handle situations. Right. And this feeds the kind of personality cult of Xi Jinping. At the same time, he expresses anti-China sentiments, Mm -hmm. which feeds into the nationalist narrative of the Communist Party that's like, the world is out to get us, so we need a strong state. Yeah. So, and there have been various points of kind of, you know, intemperate comments about the situation in Hong Kong. And including referring to it as a kind of chip in the ongoing trade war. And that's not the, the way that Hong Kongers want to see their own, to themselves as deciding their own fate. And yet there have been moments when there's such a desire to have some sign of international support that, you know, Trump was praised in right. Hong Kong at a certain point and American flags have sometimes showed up yeah. only in small numbers. And then but even in small numbers, those images of them get then amplified on the mainland. And then that plays into a narrative to delegitimize the movement. Mm. 
by saying it's all an American plot, right. even though there's widespread popular support for it. Hmm. So it's a complicated issue. <laughs> so maybe you could tell us a bit about how coronavirus is playing out in Hong Kong, how it's affecting not just the protesters themselves, but Hong Kong's sense of identity, the complex ways in which Xi's response to the coronavirus plays out in Hong Kong. It's put a pause on collective gatherings because including protest gatherings, because people don't want to be in close proximity with a crowd at this point. Mm -hmm. But it's actually widened the distrust of Carrie Lam's government, because it has seemed at each step that the Hong Kong government has been taking its cues from Beijing, rather than listening to local experts. Mm -hmm. So some people might have said, like, okay, whether or not the one country, two systems arrangement works fully well, how does it affect my life? Oh, yeah. what, what difference does it really make if my kids learn about Tiananmen in school or not? And if they learn simplified characters or complex characters, the traditional characters, mm-hmm. you know, how does that really affect my daily life if I'm, you know, in various kind of professions yeah. and things? But when it comes to issues like public health, that's something everybody feels like. Mm-hmm. The decisions that that are made should be made thinking about the impact on the population, not thinking about the leader's relationship to a distant capital. Right. So it's ironically slowed the movement. And one thing that's continued even while it's been slowing is police have been rounding up people whose names they have or information they have from past protests. So that's a check on the movement and an undermining of it. But at the same time, you have some people who didn't understand how important the protests were now thinking, yeah, okay, having more of a a degree of autonomy is important. So there's a kind of paradox, I think, in the story. As you just mentioned, we think a certain thing will happen. It does, but the opposite is also happening. Emily, I'm wondering if you could problematize the whole story. We as Westerners, you know, we have a desire to project our democratic desires onto the Hong Kong story, but it's it's actually more complicated than that. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah, I'd say that's exactly right. There's a danger in projecting a Hollywood, which is to say Americanized narrative on the movement, no matter how tempting it is. There are complexities that are hard to contend with. One of them that comes to mind immediately is, well, uh, Jeffrey has mentioned it, that a small contingent of protesters are desperately trying to find hope even in figures as outlandish as Donald Trump. Hmm. Um, And that's something I experienced one summer when I lived in Taipei, Taiwan. I stumbled into a pro-independence cafe. I thought perhaps I'd found my people. But when we came to the topic of American politics, I realized that they were all Trump supporters. Hmm. And it's not because they have some kind of stake in the border between Mexico and the United States. It's purely because there was hope that with this new president, Taiwan could gain additional legitimacy. But there wasn't a connection there that I could see that connected Trump's anti-democratic legacy with the ideals of the same movement that people are trying to bring about in Taiwan and Hong Kong. In this case, it seemed more like a Machiavellian political maneuver. Mm -hmm. If a more powerful nation could intercede, then people are willing to go there. Mm. And you can even see that when in the protests, sometimes you see people carrying or wearing Union Jack flags, Mm -hmm. kind of 
experiencing nostalgia for a time when they were under previous colonial occupation. Yeah. I mean, the queen used to be on our coins. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Hong Kongers, when they speak English, have um, a British accent. <laughs> so that's complicated. But an another thing that comes to mind is that racial prejudice against mainlanders can get into pretty toxic places. Mm. And I've seen it in just offhand comments. Mm. There's just the sense that mainlanders, they're uncivilized, that we can't get along with them, that they're rich, and mm. that they just want to take advantage of the situation, mm -hmm. which surely can't be true of the billions of people who live on the mainland. No, and Jeffrey, the point I love that you make in your book is you say that it's really about borders and the porosity of borders and what happens when borders break down. So I'm wondering if you could just, I guess, to conclude, to talk about why we should keep paying attention to Hong Kong. So I think at this moment, the coronavirus underscores one of the reasons we really should pay attention to Hong Kong, which is simply that in Hong Kong, while the differences have blurred to some extent, there's still a very different kind of freedom of press in in Hong Kong. It's it's under fire, it's under siege, journalists are facing lots of challenges, but they're much freer to operate than on the mainland. And yet they're close to the mainland, so information is accessible that is harder to get further away. I bring up the parallel with West Berlin in um, here, but it, similarly, if you wanted to get information about East Germany, West Berlin was closer and, and there was more flow of information across it. Hong Kong, similarly, it's close to the mainland and it can be a kind of listening post there. And during issues where there's a cover-up on the mainland, yeah. Hong Kong can be an important site of working against that cover-up. Yeah. And during the SARS crisis, an earlier public health one, it was partly Hong Kong reporting that forced more the mainland more to come clean about it. Mm -hmm. So in this case, too, you know, if, if we don't have a free press in Hong Kong, we're going to be much more vulnerable when things like this happen hmm. that have the potential to spread. So the Hong Kong story is one with implications for people living all over the place, not just in Hong Kong. What has your perspective been, Griffin, being new to the, the whole... To the story. History? Yeah, I guess for me... My perspective has been, it's a story of a city, as you say, a cosmopolitan city, one in which languages and cultures are fluid. For me, it's uh, much like how I experienced New York City, and it's got similar demographic size. And so it's very easy for me to imagine, as an American, as a liberal, who sees the increasing, let's call it the de-democratization of the United States happening before my eyes, to watch how people with similar values to me, not exactly the same, but similar, how they're responding. So I found it quite inspiring, not just for my own you know, lack of knowledge about Asia, but realizing that the whole culture, which is much more ancient than mine, how it's found ways of adapting symbols, how it's found ways of rewriting its history, remembering its history, it's just been eye-opening, I guess. And I think that might also help explain why Americans are becoming more interested in the story is we see ourselves in it. Americans of a certain set of values who we're starting to realize, wait, we've put democracy on autopilot for so many years, in some cases for decades. Uh, the frog has been boiling. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think we're starting to see a bit of that, too. 
So I think we really need to pay attention to Hong Kong, to Asia. And I think many Hong Kongers are saying, well, thank you for the coverage. Uh, thank you for caring. But actually, we should be saying in America, we should say thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for giving us, like waking us up. Jeffrey Wasserstrom, thank you so much for speaking with us today. And thank you, Emily. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to do this with you too, Emily. So here's what's happening at the magazine. We're in the midst of a primary season, of course, and we have a lot of coverage online uh, about uh, the Democratic race in particular. Pieces by Dorothy Fortenberry, Sam Adler-Bell, and Rand Cooper are anchoring our online coverage at the moment. We're also putting together our special issue on the parish, which we're featuring in our April issue of the magazine, so please be on the lookout for that. Even as we're looking ahead to that April issue, I want to call our listeners' attention back to the March issue, in which we featured a column by Kathleen Cavani called The Fullness of Time, and she writes about encountering death as a daughter and as a theologian. And I really do recommend, if you haven't had the chance to read it yet, to, to go back and do so. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff, in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>